Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Heather McGee is an expert in economic and social policy and now chairs the board of Color of Change, the nation's largest online racial justice organization. Her new book, The Sum of Us, offers a powerful exploration of inequality and the lesson that generations of Americans have failed to learn. Racism has a cost for everyone, not just for people of color. But in unlikely places of worship and work, McGee finds proof of what she calls the solidarity dividend, the benefits we gain when people come together across race to accomplish what we simply can't do on our own. Now let's join Heather McGee in conversation with her editor, Chris Jackson. Hi, I'm Chris Jackson. I'm the publisher and editor-in-chief at One World Books and also the editor of The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. So Heather, just to start, can you just, for people who don't know, tell us what is The Sum of Us? The Sum of Us is a book that I wrote to try to answer the question, why does it seem like we can't have nice things in America? And by nice things, I don't mean like laundry that does itself. I mean nice things like universal affordable health care and paid family leave and world-class infrastructure and wages that keep workers out of poverty. Um, I mean the types of things that really provide for a decent standard of living for this country of such hardworking people. And in order to answer that question, which I kind of tried to do over nearly 20 years working as a public policy wonk at a think tank, um, researching, using statistical analysis and data, I sort of left that role out of a little bit of frustration, feeling like there were these invisible headwinds holding us back from making what seemed like obvious economic decisions to improve most people's quality of life. So I set out on this journey over the course of three years. Uh, I went from California to Mississippi to Maine and back again multiple times. And I came upon these core concepts through talking to really hundreds of people, dozens of whom end up in the book, um, that really helped explain a little bit better that ultimately it's racism in our politics and our policymaking that is keeping us all from having nice things. And therefore, it's not actually a zero sum. It's not the case that what's good for one group is necessarily bad for the other. It's not the case that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. Um, and that idea that the zero sum is this lie that is holding back our collective progress is one that I wanted to tackle head on. That's what the sum of us means. It's about interrupting this lie, refuting this lie of the zero sum racial story. And the central metaphor at the heart of the book is the story of the drained public pool, which is what happened across the country to many of the lavishly funded public swimming pools that really stand in as sort of an idea of government's commitment to the public good, to saying, you know what, this would be great for people, let's do it. Let's make a swimming pool. Let's make social security and high wages and high levels of unionization and um, free college and all of these things that we did create uh, in the first half of the 20th century, but we made them segregated and racially exclusive, like the public swimming pools, which often had a white only sign. And it was when we integrated the pools, when black families said, you know what, those are our tax dollars funding those public goods, and we think our kids should swim too, that many towns and cities drained their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. And for me, the story of that loss, which was a loss shared across a community out of racial spite and out of this zero-sum fear of sharing a public good, 
um, really helps to explain how we got to this place where so much of what we hold in common is impoverished, where our politics um, are very anti-government and it makes us sort of stand apart in the, of our peer economies. And yet the book is hopeful. The book is hopeful because just as in my journey I found evidence of the zero sum, I found evidence of drain pool politics and things like universal health care and our rising student debt and our lack of free college, um, the attack on workers' rights, all these ways that racism stops us from taking collective action and really problem solving together, I also found examples of the exact opposite happening, mostly in communities where grassroots collections of people from all walks of life came together uh, to fight for the things that we simply can't accomplish on our own. And I began to call that idea the solidarity dividend, the idea of these gains that can be unlocked, but only when we come together across lines of race, things like higher wages and cleaner air and better funded schools. And it's those solidarity dividends that give me a lot of hope at the local level and you know, right now from where we sit at the national level. Um, so much of the progress that we've been able to make economically, U.S. poverty rate is the lowest level it's been on record in 2021, um, is because of a multiracial coalition that came together. And so I'm really excited to talk to you about the book. Um, the book has changed my life in so many ways. Uh, it's helped me think about some things that I've always wanted to think about and talk to some people across the country that um, really changed the way I see the world. That's really fantastic. So it's been a year since the book came out and hundreds of thousands of people we know have read the book, which is kind of amazing to think about. Um, back when we were first uh, starting to work on it, that it would be so widespread throughout the country. Um, and I have a few questions from some of our readers that we're going to talk about, but I want to start actually with one more broad question. What, what have you found has been the response to readers when they read the book? I know we've shared some of those responses that we've seen on social media and so forth, but what's your general impression of how people respond to it or what they respond to in it? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's been amazing. Um, this is my first book, um, so far my only book. Um, um, and, uh, I think I didn't realize how much the medium of a book, the format, um, is so different from all the other ways I've been communicating over the past 20 years. I go on TV all the time, I do legislative testimony, I write white papers, all these other things that are just not as intimate and personal, mm -hmm. that don't stay with you as long. Um, there's something about a book, I think, that really, um, you, you, when you're reading it to yourself, you're taking my words and they're entering your consciousness through your own inner voice. And I think that can be very powerful. Um, what I love that people really uh, pick up from the book are the stories. Um, this is, book is not an economics textbook, although it's about an economic policy person trying to figure out big problems in the American economy. Um, it has stories of people, um, people who in their lives and in describing their lives and what happens to them really show and reveal um, what's wrong with the American economy and, and how we can fix it and how racism has played a role in shaping these dynamics. Um, stories like Bridget Hughes, a fast food worker who is white and changes her consciousness about immigrants and people of color in order to join with them to win a f in the fight for 15, $15 in the union. Um, people like the Tomlins, who uh, are black elderly family in North Carolina who lose, almost lose their home but fight to keep it, and that of so many others 
around them during the run-up to the financial crisis. Those stories are, I think, what stick with people. The metaphor of the drained pool, right? It's, an, it's kind of a haunting image, and, and it really is, I think, for some people, like an aha of like, yes, I know that in our society today, what is public is usually worse, right? It's usually um, run down. It's usually starved for resources. But why should that be? Shouldn't it be that things that are public, that are for all of us and funded by all of us, should be palaces? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that idea um, has resonated with folks. Another response to the book has been that people appreciate that it's hopeful because um, there's so much bad news about race and racism, and the book mm-hmm. is full of, I don't pull any punches about the extent of racism in our society. Um, and yet I'm a hopeful person and the stories I tell, I tell are ultimately hopeful ones. So let's get into some questions. These are uh, questions from people who are readers of the book, of many, many questions that we received from them. We're just going to go through three of those today. Okay, so here comes the first one. Was there an aspect to your writing process where you revised and edited in an attempt to reach readers who were reluctant to delve into issues of race. And can you talk about that process? And you talk about the fact that, you know, obviously there's so much negative information or depressing information or despairing information about race that can be a turnoff for people, even those who are motivated to do something about it. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was hoping you would help me remember this a little bit too as my editor. I mean, we had so many conversations. I mean, I remember very vividly coming in with the book proposal and meeting you for the first time. Um, and I remember you said to me, um, there's a tension in your book between self-interest and empathy. Mm-hmm. And I was a really struck. was a very smart thing to say, Chris. Um, but it was also um, that core tension, I think, is one that I tried to really play with and get the right balance of throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the Some of Us is definitely a kind of, radical and disciplined exercise in empathy for me as a writer. Um, There were moments when I was deep into the history of slavery, deep into the history of redlining, segregation, and lynching. And I mean, it's just so dark. And yet, I knew that where I wanted to go was ultimately a place where the horrors of that did not um, make me I just had to substitute the re- you know myself for the reader did, did not make me unwilling to go on the journey mm-hmm. um, and I also felt like at every point I wanted to see if where we're trying to go as a society is a place where we truly recognize our common humanity and where the things that make us human right the the stories that we have about the first time anybody ever loved us, about feeling seen, about feeling belonging. Like those are really what make us human. If that's where we wanna go as a society, where that those touchstones are points of connection, then I felt like I needed to try as much as possible in my writing to be in that space mm-hmm. and to put myself in the shoes of every character in my book, mm-hmm. even you know politicians doing terrible things, uh, even, you know, people doing terrible things. Um, and so that sort of exercise of empathy was definitely, I did sort of empathy reads of my own text sort of over and over again to think, okay, if I'm reading this as this kind of person, how does this land? I just didn't 
take for granted that the body that I sit in, the life that mm-hmm. I have lived, is everybody else's life. Mm-hmm. And so since communication is both what you say and what's heard, I wanted to try to think about who would be hearing it and how it might, what I said could actually land with them right. in a way that touched them. Well, it's interesting because uh, you're black mm-hmm. and, and so am I, mm-hmm. and I was your editor. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other people, surely, who you had to read the book who yeah. were not. Yeah. Was, were, were they able to kind of help you sort of navigate that, that sort of like trying to land it for all kinds of readers? Absolutely. Um, I had someone from every major racial and ethnic <laughs> group in the country read the book who were my friends and collaborators, research assistants, and um, just other, other writer friends, my husband, right? All these different voices. Um, and then more importantly, also like people whose uh, familiarity with race text mm-hmm. and with racial history mm-hmm. was different, right? right. And mm-hmm. so sort of people who are on a different place in the journey. Um, one of my girlfriends who read the book entirely um, really started out like, you know, like so many white people, mm-hmm. like, n- you know, hadn't spent a ton of time thinking critically about race mm-hmm. and about whiteness and how it functions in society. Good person, super interpersonally mm-hmm. anti-racist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But not at all um, sort of immersed in the theory and the intellectual body and hadn't, you know, ever gone through a process to really do the work. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, reading drafts of my book was that process. So it was amazing to watch her go through mm-hmm. it and watch her sort of resistance fade. And also for her to tell me, you know, I'm, I'm on page through, you know, whatever, and like my ears are hot and my throat is tight, <laughs> right? And it's making it hard for me to get to the next page. And, you know, that's really important stuff. Um, but mostly, like, I love people and I wanted people to have a certain emotional experience reading the book. And so it wasn't like cold calculation. It was sort of a mm-hmm. sense of can I keep the relationship with all of my readers throughout the book? And I wanted people to read it in multiracial groups. So I also would picture like, you know, a church group or a book club that had people of different faiths and backgrounds trying to get into this text together mm-hmm. and wanting everybody to have something in it. Yeah, and no, I think that's really the key to the book is I think you can tell, uh, as a reader, you can tell that you're not pandering to any particular point of view or any racial group. Um, there's so much integrity in what you write, but there's like doors open everywhere for anyone to enter into the story, which I think is so important, um, where you don't budge at all on your argument, but you nevertheless like make it available and open to anyone who comes to it in good faith. And um, so I think that that worked. <laughs> all right, <laughs> so our next question is, on the people who most need to read this book, will never be open-minded enough to actually read it. What are some potential leading or critical thinking questions I can ask them to get them to think about some of the issues that you explain in your book? There's some premises in this question that are interesting, Mm -hmm. but um, what what do you think? Well, the premise that the people who most need to read the book wouldn't, um, I hope is not the case. Um, It hasn't been my experience that it's the case. I've gotten plenty of emails from, you know, who's emails that say, I'm a white male Republican, I'm 70 years old, I've held these kinds of beliefs my whole life, and I read your book, and it really made me see things differently, which are, you know, just gold to me, and truly wonderful, moving things to receive. Um, 
but I, you know, I get the idea. Yes, right there. We have become so polarized on issues, not just of race and racism, but of talking about race and racism, really because of this zero sum idea, right? Mm-hmm. That if talking about racism will lead to something that's good for black people, it must be bad for white people. It leads to something that's good or people of color want it, it must mean a loss for white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in some ways, A, by naming that zero sum mentality and asking, you know, so if I'm trying to reach someone who, I'm tr- if I'm trying to, if I'm trying to convince someone to read the book, mm-hmm. um, maybe who holds that zero-sum view or whose politics, that's sort of the core story of their politics, um, just naming it. Um, because in some ways, it, just saying, do you really believe that in order for there to be equality, white people are going to be worse off? Mm-hmm. Or in order for a black or brown family down the road to have their American dream, you have to lose yours. Mm-hmm. You know, like that actually just letting that idea breathe and mm-hmm. putting a name to it, I think is is really important because it doesn't sound good, right? It sounds wrong. <laughs> and yet it's such a core part of the, the right-wing narrative. And so um, having that conversation at the level of that concept and maybe seeing places where someone could actually disagree with the zero sum Mm -hmm. uh, might be a good way to start. How do you explain why nearly half of American workers are low paid Mm -hmm. um, and why 1% of the population owns more wealth than the entire middle class and and why um, politicians who campaign on cultural grievance get into power and govern on tax cuts for the wealthy. Mm -hmm. How do you explain how we went from having a strong middle class that was mostly white to having a more diverse country um, and the policies and rules have completely changed Mm -hmm. to make it so much easier for people to get rich and so much harder for working people to get by? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you explain that? What's your story? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are some of the questions that I might ask. And then... The pool story, you know, people right. tend to like the pool story mm-hmm. and and it is a head scratcher for why towns and cities would drain their public pools rather than integrate them. Mm-hmm. And is there anything like that in our current society today? You know, I find when I talk to people about the book, that is the entry point. And, and I think what's interesting about the question, too, is like it raises another question, which is who most needs the book, mm-hmm. right? And I think there's probably an assumption yeah. within that question that, oh, well, some conservative, right-wing, white person needs the book. But it's a mystery for all of us, you know? And there's a resistance, I think, that a lot of people, even people who you, know, you might you know, think of as being liberal, even people of color, there's a, there's a, a resistance to the idea that racism, could racism actually be the problem? You know, that, that explains not just why black people suffer and are, you know, disproportionately like beaten and killed by the police, but that actually explains everything. <laughs> you know, it seems like a leap for, I think, a lot of people to get there. And I think you're right that the drain pool story definitely like starts to focus them because they, they start to realize maybe even something as simple as, you know, the privatization of swimming pools in America can be explained through racism. And then the metaphor of the drain pool, when you start to say, okay, why don't we have universal health care? It would require a massive role for government. Um, people understand, I think, that uh, there's a lot of resistance to Obamacare because 
it was uh, brought to the country or signed by the first black president. Um, things like universal free public college. People really do understand that it used to be free and the government used to pick up the tab and what happened, why? It's not like it became less important to have a college degree, right? You know, So some of these things that are sort of head scratchers, why were unions so strong and created this robust middle class for which everyone is nostalgic from right to left mm -hmm. and yet now we have some of the lowest unionization rates mm -hmm. of our peer economies and, and why, right? Because it requires collective action and often collective action falls apart in a multiracial society. The other thing um, that is a different assumption about who needs to read the book is, you know, my emphasis on the power of multiracial organizing and coalitions is something that some people of color don't necessarily, that's, that's a hard for some of us to wrap our minds around, like the, the, remem the idea that you know, black folks are just 13% of the population. And ultimately, like all of the moments of great progress in this country have come through multiracial coalitions mm -hmm. um, led by black people, sacrificed the most for by black people, but never alone. We've never mm -hmm. had the power to, um, to change all of the laws in the country on our own. And so that's something that I think is I've heard from people of color, particularly in this moment in the country of such, you know, powerful black consciousness that a reminder of the sort of sense of mutual interest in overcoming and that it's not a zero sum um, is actually important too. Right. And I think it's it, one of the disarming things about the book is that you start by acknowledging that this was not necessarily the first answer that you came to either, that it was something that you were thinking, okay, economics is economics, and obviously you're very aware of and, and, and you know, steeped in like the history of racism in this country, but bringing those two things together in, in the way that the book ultimately does was not your, was something that you came to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I try to solve these problems through data. I try to solve these problems by just working on these problems, right? right. It's like, let us solve the problem of unaffordable college. Let us solve the problem of poverty wages. And yet race kept being this sort of invisible headwind. And finally I said, you know what? I've got to figure this out. I've got to figure out just how much racism in our politics and policymaking is actually the answer to the inexplicable why mm -hmm. of inequality in America. If a local community wants to research and share local incidents of, of the history you describe in order to work toward repair, reparation, what are some examples to follow? And maybe before you answer that, you can talk a little bit about what the questioner is talking about yeah. in the book. Yeah, so um, first, I mean, throughout the book, you know, I include a little bit of history. Um, I'm not an historian, and yet I felt like to understand where we are today, you know, the economy and the society of today, I had to look a little bit towards what were the decisions that, that made this possible. And so there is history in every chapter and there is the history of explicit racial policies that end up distorting um, our society in one way or another with implications for all of us. And so, you know, the history of redlining shows up a lot in the book, the idea that history uh, shows up in your wallet through wealth, through your home equity, your savings. Um, the fact that a black college graduate has less wealth on average than a white high school dropout, not because of what that black co college graduate did or didn't do, but because of explicitly racist decisions um, generations ago. Um, that is the history that 
needs to be owned up to, revealed, understood, if we're to have something other than racist explanations for the disparities today. And so I think what the uh, book club member who, who raised that question is asking, you know, how do we find that local history? Because it is, it really is a, it's a local history. Right. Um, it's a history of place. It's a history of space. And um, in the final chapter of the book, I introduce a concept called the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Process. And I talked to folks in Dallas who have written a community history that is a, a race-forward community history of their city um, that explains so many of these decisions. And how would one go about doing that? Um, it's such a great question. Uh, I'm really glad that someone wants to do it. And it's been, there's been that response to the book, let's do this in our, in our hometown. So first of all, there are one of the core ideas with the truth, racial healing, and transformation process. It's a whole framework. People can find the guidebook on healourcommunities.org. Um, is that you want to gather a team, that you don't want to just do it alone. You want to get sort of stakeholders from lots of different parts of your community to be sort of the coalition of the willing to do this process. And I think that's important even if you're not doing specifically a TRHT thing, but just bring together people of all sort of neighborhoods and backgrounds from your community to try to write this story together. Local universities are obviously a resource. There are going to be ethnic studies and urban studies, uh, uh, professors and departments that can help. Um, there are two resources out of the University of Richmond called Mapping Inequality, which has all of the country's redlining maps. Mm -hmm. And you can really actually see you know, the neighborhood where I was born, it said high concentration mm -hmm. of Negroes, you know, mm -hmm. do not lend, right? Um, mm -hmm. Hazardous. Um, and then there's a newer resource at the University of Richmond called Renewing Inequality, which shows the maps of all of the urban renewal projects, which were how black and brown neighborhoods got designated as blighted slums in order to place highways through them in the 1950s and 60s. And that's another very economically and socially traumatic event that had destroyed black wealth. And so those are two resources mm -hmm. to find out, you know, where these racist decisions shaped your community. In general, I think because this book has taught me that the fingerprints of racism are on so many areas of policy, what I've been really buoyed by has been hearing people who've read the book say, I read the book and I decided to work on how our schools are funded. Mm -hmm. I read the book and I decided to work on, you know, a permit that was about to be granted for, um, you know, a, an, an incinerator and it was mm -hmm. going to be in the, you know, Latino neighborhood. Like all of these little things, um, you know, how our taxes are, coll are collected, where the public recreation and swimming pools and playgrounds mm -hmm. and green spaces are. There's so many places where these decisions have a racial implication. Um, are shot through with racial bias and less communities come together and call the question. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I think that's one of the real powers of the book is that, you know, I think what a great book will do is actually explain things to you, like explain the things that are happening in the world right now. We'll explain the daily news to you. Um, and I think reading this book, you start to really understand so much of what's going on in our national politics, but also locally. And just going back to that question that the reader had, um, you know, you, you talk about uh, the, these kinds of processes of truth and reconciliation, although you don't say truth and reconciliation, you say... Racial healing and transformation. This racial is actually really important because 
truth and reconciliation isn't appropriate for our context. Right. We were founded to be separate and apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so reconcile means to come back right. together from some original state of being together. We don't need to reconcile, right. go back. We need to transform. And that's why my mother, Dr. Gail Christopher, who created, was the architect of that whole process that's happening in dozens of cities, chose racial healing and transformation and not reconciliation. Right, and that is a precondition in some ways to a lot of the other changes that we're looking to happen on a national level. Yeah, I do think that that consciousness raising, that understanding, as I say in the book, to get on the same page before we can Mm -hmm. turn it, Mm -hmm. that's really necessary. And that's why there's this war about history right now, about you know, what words we get to say, what, um, what's about our children's freedom to learn. Because the fear is that we will understand, mm-hmm. is that our children will develop empathy, is that we will question the stereotypes and the demonization of people who are suffering. And we will begin to put responsibility where it belongs, mm-hmm. which is with the narrow self-interested elite, mm-hmm. the sort of descendants of the plantation class, either literally, as is often the case, Mm -hmm. or just sort of uh, ideologically. Um, When we understand each other's history and plight, when we understand our collective history, I do believe that it makes us less willing to believe the lies today. Right. Right. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. And now, here's an exclusive excerpt from the audiobook, courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. Growing up, my family and my neighbors were always hustling. My mother had the fluctuating income of a person with an entrepreneur's mind and a social worker's heart. My dad, divorced from my mom since I was two, had his own up-and-down small business, too, and soon a new wife and kids to take care of. If we had a good year, my mom, my brother, and I moved into a bigger apartment. A bad spell, and I'd notice the mail going unopened in neat but worrisome piles on the hall table. I now know we were in what economists call the fragile middle class. All income from volatile earnings and no inherited wealth or assets to fall back on. We were the kind of middle class in the kind of community that kept us proximate to real poverty. And I think this shaped the way I see the world. My mother took us with her to work in Chicago's notorious Robert Taylor public housing projects while she gave health lessons to young mothers. And some of my earliest playmates were kids with disabilities in a group home where she also worked. It seemed she was always working. We had cousins and neighbors who had more than we did and some who had far less. But we never learned to peg that to their worth. It just wasn't part of our story. I did learn, though, to ask why, undoubtedly to an annoying degree. In the back seat of the station wagon facing the rear window, I asked why. Why were there so many people sleeping on the grates on Lower Wacker Drive downtown, huddled together in that odd, unsunny yellow lamplight? Why did the big plant over on Kedzie have to close, and would another one open and hire everybody back? Why was Ralph's family's furniture out on the curb? And where did their landlord think Ralph was going to live now? My father turned 18 the year the Voting Rights Act was signed. My mother did when the Fair Housing Act was signed three years later. That meant that my parents were in the first generation of Black Americans 
to live full adult lives with explicitly racist barriers lowered enough for them to even glimpse the so-called American dream. And just as they did, the rules changed to dim the lights on it for everyone. In the mid-1960s, the American dream was as easy to achieve as it ever was or has been since, with good union jobs, subsidized home ownership, strong financial protections, a high minimum wage, and a high tax rate that funded American research, infrastructure, and education. But in the following decades, rapid changes to tax, labor, and trade laws meant that an economy that used to look like a football, fatter in the middle, was shaped like a bow tie by my own 18th birthday, with a narrow middle class and bulging ends of high- and low-income households. This is the inequality era. Even in the supposedly good economic times before the COVID-19 pandemic that began in 2020, 40% of adults were not paid enough to reliably meet their needs for housing, food, healthcare, and utilities. Only about two out of three workers had jobs with basic benefits, health insurance, a retirement account, even one they had to fund themselves, or paid time off for illness or caregiving. Upward mobility, the very essence of the American idea, has become stagnant, and many of our global competitors are now performing far better on what we have long considered to be the American dream. On the other end, money is still being made. The 350 biggest corporations pay their CEOs 278 times what they pay their average workers, up from a 58 to 1 ratio in 1989, and nearly two dozen companies have CEO-to-worker pay gaps of over 1,000 to 1. The richest 1% own as much wealth as the entire middle class. I learned how to track these numbers in my early days working at a think tank. But what I was still asking when I decided to leave it 15 years later was, why? Why was there a constituency at all for policies that would make it harder for more people to have a decent life? And why did so many people seem to blame the last folks in line for the American dream? Black and brown people and new immigrants who had just started to glimpse it when it became harder to reach. For economic decisions, they had no power to influence. When I came across a study by two Boston-based scholars titled, Whites See Racism as a Zero-Sum Game That They Are Now Losing, something clicked. I decided to pay the study authors a visit. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf. And until next time, this has been Books Connect Us. Books Connect Us.